After Eon Productions decided to delay the James Bond film for your eyes only so that they could make the more science fiction film Moonraker first, United Artists decided to limit the budget for for your eyes only before that started production. This was due to the extremely high budget for Moonraker, some recent flops for United Artists, and the overall financial recession. As such, For Your Eyes Only would have a budget of $28 million as opposed to the previous film's $34 million. Unfortunately, the team would then be unable to afford such directors as Terrence Young, Guy Hamilton, Lewis Gilbert, and Peter Hunt, who had directed previous Bond films, which meant they would have to turn to a first-time director for one of the biggest franchises in the history of film. Welcome back to Cases of Continuity, where this season we are diving into the history behind and stories within the official Eon Productions James Bond films. My name is Ryan, I am your host, and in our 12th episode today, we're tackling the film For Your Eyes Only, which has a very different feel from all the other Bond films that we've been covering so far in the Roger Moore era. Before we get into our history, though, as a reminder, you can contact the show at casesofcontinuity at gmail.com. I look forward to reading some of your emails on the show. Now, our history picks up with Moonraker, the 11th James Bond film, which was at the time the most successful James Bond film the franchise had produced yet. Our story begins in 1958. Ian Fleming was working with the television channel CBS in order to create a James Bond television show. For this proposed show, he wrote a script that he called For Your Eyes Only. Unfortunately, that television show would end up being canceled. However, Fleming decided to keep the For Your Eyes Only theme and use it as a short story. As such, in 1960, he published a collection of five short stories. They were released under the name For Your Eyes Only and included the For Your Eyes Only story as well as the stories From a View to a Kill, Quantum of Solace, Risico, and The Hildebrand Rarity. Many of those titles might sound familiar, as some of those stories would also be made into Bond films in the future. This then brings us back to where we are for our history, entering the 1980s, a new decade for James Bond. Of course, after the massive success of Moonraker, it became quite obvious that another Bond film would be made in the series. However, with the diminished budget, it was editor John Glenn who was promoted to director. Now, the focus from a larger scale adventure like we saw in The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker to the smaller scale adventure that we would see in Fury Eyes Only was quite intentional from Glenn. This was due to two main reasons. First, of course, the small budget. But secondly, it marked a return to the classic gritty James Bond that was originally written by Ian Fleming in the series. This was taken into account with the tenser settings in this film and the fact that James Bond uses very few gadgets. It was considered a grassroots return to Bond and after the science fiction spectacle that was Moonraker, the team didn't want things to become any more ridiculous or outrageous in the series. It was meant to feel like a Cold War thriller, and 
It's something that we would see utilized in the future in the Timothy Dalton and Daniel Craig eras of the character. Previous screenwriters Tom Mankiewicz and Christopher Wood had given some different outlines and drafts for this potential film, however, neither of those were used. Instead, writer Richard Maybaum, who had written many of the scripts for the films in the Sean Connery era, returned to the franchise. This was his first script since George Lazenby's outing in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and as such, Maybaum decided to use ideas from the books, unlike what we had seen with the previous Bond films, which may have only used a villain or a location more than anything else. In fact, while utilizing the books, Maybaum pulled not just from For Your Eyes Only with the premise, but also from the short story Risico with the villain, from Live and Let Die with a certain scene where James Bond is tortured, and from Goldfinger in which a certain device is used in order to attempt to track down one of the villains of the film. Maybaum later stated with the film, though, that he was unhappy with how the main love interest, Melina, was utilized in the film. He felt that the idea that she was more bent on vengeance than on having some kind of romantic relationship with Bond didn't feel quite right with the character. Ultimately, Maybaum stated that the films didn't feel like they had with Connery, and that was because Sean Connery was no longer there. Unfortunately, he was quite critical of this final product. Speaking of Roger Moore, Moore himself was uncertain about returning to the role at this time. As such, he on Productions decided to test other actors for the film. One of their favorites that they really liked was Timothy Dalton. Dalton was one of the actors they had considered back but when it was uncertain whether Sean Connery would return to the role in Diamonds Are Forever. Dalton was offered the role here once again, but he declined as he felt that the team wasn't serious about casting a new Bond actor. Roger Moore unfortunately found out that Eon Productions was attempting to test new actors for Bond. He became quite angry. He stated in the newspaper that he was officially done with the role and Albert Broccoli had to sit down with him in order to convince him to stay. The introductory scene in this film was written as an intro for a possible new Bond to the franchise, and even though Roger Moore did end up acting in it, it helps to connect this film to what we've seen in the Connery and Lazenby eras. It features Blofeld, but only seen from the back, and that's because Eon Productions didn't have the right to Blofeld and Spectre at the time. Recall that Kevin McClory still had the rights to Blofeld and Spectre after the whole Thunderball debacle in court. Bernard Lee, who had portrayed the character M for all 11 films of the James Bond franchise, sadly died of cancer before he was able to film his scenes. The film itself had already started filming, but the scenes with M had not yet begun. Out of respect for Lee, Albert Broccoli decided that M would not be recast for this film, and as such, M was written out of it as being on leave. This would be the first Eon Productions film without M. Julian Glover was cast as the villain of the film, and he had actually been considered as being a potential actor for James Bond when the team was looking to cast a Bond in the past. Due to the tax cuts that Margaret Thatcher had imposed in the United Kingdom, 
filming was able to be performed once again at Pinewood Studios in the UK, rather than having to return to France as had been done in Moonraker. There was some location filming that occurred in the North Sea, in Greece, and in Italy. When filming in Italy, it was necessary to move snow from some nearby slopes to where the team was filming, as it was too warm for the snow to exist there, yet the snow was necessary for the Winter Olympic scenes in the film. Many of the underwater scenes in the film were, in fact, shot on a dry stage. Lighting, slow motion, and post-production was utilized in order to achieve the underwater effects. Now, Roger Moore, when filming a scene where Bond is supposed to kick a car with a person in it off a cliff, felt quite uncomfortable filming this scene. Moore agreed that it seemed like something that James Bond would do, but he felt it wasn't something that the Roger Moore version of Bond, who was lighter and perhaps more sympathetic, would do. As such, he had to be persuaded in order to shoot this scene and ultimately make Bond more ruthless in this grittier, more high-octane film than had been seen in some of the previous Roger Moore films. When filming in Greece, some of the monks there were quite unhappy that the filming was occurring. A Greek court ruled that the film was allowed to shoot outside a monastery, and although they couldn't film inside, the monks were still unhappy that the filming was occurring at all. As such, they tried to sabotage the filming. They would try to spoil some of the shots by hanging laundry outside, by putting flags of other countries right in the middle of shots, and even by putting oil drums in places where helicopters were supposed to land. Ultimately, it would be post-production that would help to make these scenes potential for the film as well. For one of the scenes in the climax of the film, where James Bond is supposed to scale up a cliffside, Roger Moore had to conquer his fear of heights. He ended up resorting to some mild drinking before going on to set in order to have the courage to climb up the rock wall. Sadly, while creating this film, 23-year-old stuntman Paolo Rigan died. While shooting the bobsled scene, he fell below the sled and very sadly ended up dying there. This is a worthwhile reminder that many horrible tragedies can occur when the necessary safety precautions are not taken, and this horrible tragedy is a very, very sad reminder of this very real fact of some of the risks that occur behind the scenes. Longtime Bond composer John Barry was unable to return to this film, and as such, composer of the film Rocky, Bill Conti, ended up scoring this film. His score was quite controversial as it included tracks that were far more upbeat and pop-centric than many previous Bond films. Some enjoyed the high energy of it, others felt that it took away from the gritty and grounded nature of this Bond film. For the theme song, Debbie Harry, the lead singer of Blondie, was asked to perform it. She agreed, but then decided that she wanted her band, Blondie, to write and perform the song. The team disagreed with that, stating that the song that had already been written was the song that was necessary to have as the theme song in the film. As such, Harry was out, and instead British singer Sheena Easton was called in to sing the song. Easton was the first Bond singer to be featured on screen in the film, as her scenes were specially filmed in order to be a part of the theme sequence as well. The opening day for Free Your Eyes Only marked the 
record in the United Kingdom for the fastest grossing first day film in the entire British box office history. This ended up being the second highest grossing Bond film of all time at the time of release at $195 million, slightly shy of Moonraker. The critics were quite harsh on this film at the time. They disliked the plot elements and they disliked the changes to the series. They felt that Roger Moore was becoming too old and that this film was quite episodic. Clearly, they preferred Moonraker and Spy Who Loved Me, those large spectacles, as opposed to this grittier iteration of the James Bond series. Nowadays, the film is received slightly better. However, it is still considered by most critics to be forgettable and imperfect overall. It certainly does have its flaws, and I'll certainly be discussing those later on. So, without further ado then, let's get into the story within, for your eyes only. As alluded to in the history segment, For Your Eyes Only opens with a segment that deeply references many of the James Bond films in the Connery and Lazenby eras. We see Bond at Tracy's tombstone, Tracy of course being his now dead wife. He sees the quote on the tombstone, we have all the time in the world. Then Bond boards a helicopter and we cut to see a white cat that's being pet. We see Blofeld from the back. He's in a wheelchair and he has a neck brace, but we can tell it's him based on the clothing and his bald head. He uses a remote control to take control of the helicopter, but Bond is able to get outside of the helicopter, climb around to the pilot's area, take control, and then is able to pilot over to grab Blofeld's wheelchair before dropping him into a smokestack. It is absolutely ridiculous. For... This film that prides itself on being a grittier, more grounded James Bond film, I truly believe that this was one of the worst possible ways that they could have opened this film. It feels so disjointed from the main portion of the movie. It's a really odd way to officially do away with and kill off one of, if not the most iconic villain in the entire series. Absolutely disappointing to me. Then we head into the main theme. We see scenes of both Roger Moore as James Bond and the singer of the song, Sheena Easton. It's a water-themed song, a little bit like Thunderball. We see some fish. The song is okay. The sequence is a bit odd. There's not much to it, and including the singer in the sequence was not a great choice in my opinion. It doesn't feel as epic or as dramatic or as energetic as what we saw with The Spy Who Loved Me and with Live and Let Die, and even to an extent with Moonraker, with Moonraker's excellent aviation and flight-themed intro. So, fortunately, not a great start to the movie so far. We then see our first scene of the main film itself, a boat, we go into the freezer room, see a door to a secret base, there's workers handcuffed to a station, there's some kind of secret project going on here. A boat pulls up a mine that's in a net. There's an explosion that ends up destroying the boat that we're seeing. And the boat goes down. 
It's reported to the Minister of Defense of the United Kingdom. Meanwhile, in Greece, a young woman returns home to her archaeologist parents on a boat. They're underwater archaeologists, doing some examining. However, the reunion is short-lived, as her parents are killed by the very helicopter that she arrived on. Then, we cut to a third scene. This time we see Moneypenny. The hat tosses on the hat rack behind her, and Bond arrives. He learned that Amazon leave, so instead the Minister of Defense and the Chief of Staff are the ones giving Bond his mission. We learn that the ATAC targeting system for missiles was on board the boat that exploded. It was in fact a spy ship, and now the United Kingdom is worried that the Soviet Union is attempting to gain this technology. They hired a man named Timothy Havelock, an oceanic archaeologist, in an attempt to locate the wreck, but he was killed. As it turns out, that was the man that we saw in the beginning. We also learned that he was killed by a man named Hector Gonzalez, a Cuban hitman, and Melina, Timothy Havelock's daughter, is still alive. It's called Operation Undertow, and Bond is sent to find Gonzalez in Madrid to determine what information he can about the man, and who may have paid him off. Bond is handed a file with this information that has the title of the film, For Your Eyes Only, written around it. It's a bit corny, and it's a major information drop at the beginning of the film. Something that we see quite a bit in the series, but it feels pretty more blatant here. We're introduced to most of the major characters in the film, most of the major settings. It's quite a bit to handle right at the beginning here. In Spain, Bond is able to sneak onto Gonzalez's complex. He's caught by Gonzalez. However, Gonzalez is killed by a crossbow arrow. Bond escapes. There's a fight that occurs around the pool that is on the overall complex, and there's pop music playing, which is a bit odd to me. I don't particularly care for it. It, again, feels very disjointed, which seems to be a common trend in this film. Luckily, Bond is able to escape from this fight. He sees Melina there with the crossbow. They escape together. Bond's car is blown up as some of Gonzalez's guards attempt to get into it, so they flee in Melina's Volkswagen Bug. There's a car chase through the town and the countryside of Spain. Ultimately, they're able to escape. Luckily, Bond is able to get information on the man who paid off Gonzalez that Bond saw right as he arrived on the complex. So, although MI6 is unhappy that the contact ended up dying, at least Bond has a lead to go off of. Heading back to England, he meets with Q and uses what's called an identigraph. While they're walking to this device, we see a karate-chopping cast and a spiked umbrella that Q is testing. Ultimately, Q and Bond are able to work together with Bond's description of the man to find that he's a man named Locke. He's from Brussels, and he's working with the Italian mob. As such, Bond must travel to the wintry slopes of Cortina in northern Italy, where the Winter Olympic training is occurring. As he arrives, he sees his location for a meeting spot written on a hotel mirror. It's revealed with steam, which is quite fun. He meets with his contact there, Ferrara. Ferrara gets him into contact with a man named Christotos. He's a Greek, but he's pro-English and has helped the British government in the past. Christotos believes that Locke is in Greece, and although 
Locke was once a friend, is now an enemy. He's known as the Dove. Bond then sees Melina in Italy. She's attacked by two bikers. Bond saves her, and we learn that she's received a fake telegram supposedly from Bond that brought her to this Italian town. Bond is able to escape from Locke's men during a shootout on the slopes, a ski chase akin to what we saw in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Ultimately, this all leads up to a fight on a hockey rink that Bond has where he is able to escape but finds out that Ferrara's been killed by Locke, which he knows from a dove pin located on Ferrara's body. Really, all of the Italy scenes don't advance the plot terribly with the exception of the introduction of Christatos and more information on Locke. Really just feels like a setting for a bit of the action sequences than any significant plot development. Feels a bit episodic here. Finally, Bond arrives in Greece, the main setting for the film. At a casino, he meets with Christatos once again. Christatos lets him know that Columbo, a heroin smuggler in the area, is the one pulling all the strings and is in charge of Locke. Bond is recorded by Columbo during this conversation. Bond speaks with Columbo's mistress. He's cornered by Locke. The mistress is killed. And then Bond is kidnapped by another group of men who rise from the sea. He's taken to Columbo, and we find out that Columbo is actually not a heroin smuggler. He instead accuses Christatos of actually being pro-Russian, of tricking the British government. And in fact, Columbo is the one who wishes to help Bond and destroy and bring down Christatos. Bond and Columbo work together to take over Christatos' boat. Locke is killed, and in this situation, we see that Bond is getting revenge for Ferrara. He mentions Ferrara's name before kicking Locke's car over the edge of a cliff. There's little information that is gleaned here. However, Bond is able to once again meet with Melina. They go through her father's log to find the wreckage of the boat. They take Neptune, a two-person sub, down to the wreckage. They are attempting to destroy the ATAC device or to bring it back to the surface, whichever they're able to. A robotic scuba suit attacks them. It is blown up as the pair escapes with the ATAC system. However, another submarine attacks. They flee, and they manage to return to their ship, only to learn that their ship's been taken over by Christatos and the German athlete Kriegler, who's working with Christatos. They're sent into the water. They're pulled from a rope on a speedboat, and as their skin scrapes against the coral at the bottom and the rocks down there, it leads to blood that ultimately brings sharks to them. Luckily, Bond's able to break the rope on some rocks and escape. Christatos assumes that they're dead, and when Melina and Bond get back on the boat, they see that Max, Melina's father's pet parrot, mentions that the ATAC is being taken to a place called St. Cyril's. They're not quite sure where St. Cyril's is, and as Bond heads into a confession stand in a church, we see that Q is described as an Orthodox priest there. It doesn't make a ton of sense. But it's thoroughly enjoyable nonetheless to see Desmond Llewellyn dressed up as an Orthodox priest. I've said this in previous episodes, and I'll say it again. Q is by far one of my favorite characters in the entire franchise, and the more scenes with Q, the better. Columbo is able to determine the correct St. Cyril's for them. It's an abandoned monastery that was used by his fellow smugglers during the war. Bond scales the monastery's cliff in a heart-pounding scene. He's caught at the top and pushed down, but saved by a rope that he had managed to get into the cliff. As he scales back up, he takes out the guard, 
He brings Columbo Molina and Columbo's men in a basket winch system for the monastery up to the top of the monastery. Bond is able to fight off Kriegler and send him off the side of the cliff. Columbo, meanwhile, faces off against Christatos. Columbo seems to lose, and as Christatos gets up to kill Bond, Columbo has enough energy to shoot and ultimately kill Christatos. The Russians arrive to take the ATAC, but before they can take it by force from Bond, Bond throws it down the cliff so that if the British can't have it, at least the enemy won't have it either. Columbo, we learn, is alive and is able to be nursed back to health. Meanwhile, Q and MI6 manage to send a message to Bond's audio watch. At the time, he's swimming with Melina, and instead the parrot Max is on the line. His Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and her husband are patched in. We see that they're in fact speaking to the parrot rather than speaking to Bond himself. We then see the underwater city that was being studied by the archaeologists as the main theme plays again. And we learn that our next Bond film is a movie called Octopussy. Let's talk a bit about this movie. It's certainly episodic in nature, and I feel like it relies on its action a bit more than some of the previous Bond films. It's certainly not as grand. However, there's some fantastic sequences. The cliff sequence is by far one of the most heart-pounding sequences in the entire James Bond franchise, and I can certainly see its influence on such future action films like Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. It's incredibly well done. I do feel that there's at times too many characters to keep track of. It's certainly overwhelming. And there's some characters that were entirely unimportant to the plot that I didn't even discuss here because they had such an insignificant role in the movie. There's also definitely some dissonance between the thematic natures seen within this film, which is certainly odd to me as well. For example, it's definitely a grittier film, and yet there are scenes that are a bit more on the ridiculous side, especially that opening sequence and the music in the background. They just don't seem to work. And ultimately, I wish that there had been a little bit more to the plot and it hadn't been so front-loaded in the film. It makes much of the film a bit on the blander side, which is a shame because these bursts of plot don't really work well in this film, in my opinion. I think that the two films of the Timothy Dalton era and the five films of the Daniel Craig era would do this darker, grittier version of Bond much better than For Your Eyes Only. That being said, I feel like the three locations used across Europe were used especially well. The Spanish countryside and the small Spanish towns were wonderful to see in the car chase sequences. The use of the different Winter Olympic settings across the mountains in Italy, with the bobsleds, the slopes of the skiing portions, the forests, fantastic. And of course, the Greek sections with the different Greek towns swimming through the sea. It's all wonderfully used, which is not something that every Bond film can say. I also love the theme of revenge in the film. It was used especially well during Bond's conversations with Melina, Bond talking about how when one attempts to take revenge, one must dig two graves, and then seeing how Bond is trying to steer her away from that, seeing almost an older and wiser version of Bond that has learned from some of his mistakes in the previous films. Fantastic. So, all in all, this is probably one of the most uneven Bond films that I've seen thus far. The good portions were especially good. 
and the bad portions were just incredibly dull and boring, which is not at all what you want from a James Bond film. Which definitely makes this an interesting study, and perhaps might be the reason that this is one of the least remembered James Bond films, because it doesn't necessarily stand out as being especially good or especially bad. Let's talk a bit about the continuity, because this film, as one might expect, is chock-full. It's worth noting that the Russian scene throughout this film is Gogol. He's the man in charge of the Russian secret agency that we saw, especially in The Spy Who Loved Me, but also with a brief cameo in Moonraker. It's nice to see him again, especially because he seems to be this recurring character representing the KGB and the Russian Secret Service. When Ferrara is waiting for Bond in the Lotus of Spirit car, Bond mentions to Ferrara to be careful of some of the switches in the car and not to touch them. This is, of course, a reference to many of the souped-up cars that we've seen Bond drive in previous films. Most recently in Moonraker, but also as far back as in Goldfinger, it's a nice callback to something that we've seen quite a bit in the Bond franchise, but not in this film, because this film, again, tries to veer away from the more ridiculous and outlandish gadgets of Bond, including those souped-up cars. And, of course, the introductory sequence to the entire film is an entire sequence that is built on continuity. We start off with Tracy's tombstone and the we have all the time in the world quote from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, something that was dearly important to the Lazenby version of Bond. Then of course seeing Blofeld in the wheelchair with the neck brace, clearly he suffered some injuries from the explosion of the oil tanker that we saw in Diamonds Are Forever, the last time that we saw Blofeld. So he may have also lost his hair there after his cosmetic surgery that he underwent in that film. And it's neat that even with how ridiculous this intro is, it pays respect to those previous films of the Lazenby and Connery eras. It's worth noting that the Roger Moore version of Bond shows significant emotion at Tracy's grave, bringing her flowers and becoming very, very somber, far more somber than we've seen the character any time before now. So. Clearly, there are some shared memories between these different versions of Bond, otherwise he wouldn't have that deep emotion. And again, I think that further reinforces my theory of these shared memories, yet distinct personalities of Bond that I've discussed multiple times in the past. It's a fun study, and in such an overlooked Bond film, it's especially neat to see the things that are hidden in there. This, in turn, leads us to our next Bond film for next week, where we're turning to the 13th, the unlucky 13th Bond film, Octopussy. United Artists is being sold to MGM, officially, and as such, this would be MGM's first foray into the Bond franchise, working with Eon Productions. Unfortunately, our next two Bond films, Octopussy and following that, A View to a Kill, are not only Roger Moore's final two Bond films, but are considered two of the worst Bond films in the franchise question becomes why, and with the Bond franchise being at such a height as it has been with these last three films, it's going to be an interesting study to see where the franchise goes from here. I look forward to you joining me on this journey next week. Until then, though, I'm Ryan, your host. Thanks for joining me, and have a fantastic week.